Lord God. Speak true, speak by your word, Lord Jesus. Speak what we need to hear from you. In your holy name, amen. Amen. I think about, in sermon preparation, I think about, my goal is to tell you what the word says, tell you what it means, and then how to apply it to your life. And so I think of, uh, we used to have this uh, leadership scale we did at work where he'd say like, you know, you're not trying to take somebody who's a two and move them all the way to a ten. Right? Because that's too much. They'd just be too much. They'd just push away. They can't do it. So if you're a two today, I'm not trying to make you a ten. I'm trying to make you like a four or five. If you're an eight, let's move you to a nine. Wherever you're at in this place in your journey with Christ and your understanding and, and your obedience, let's move you a little further down the road. Okay? So don't get discouraged if you're like, ah, oh, I can't do all that stuff that Pastor Matt preaches every week. It's okay. Just keep working at it. That's the goal, right? Keep working at it. Alright, we're in the book of Acts. On Wednesdays, look in the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're starting chapter 13. Book of Acts, chapter 13 says, Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul. As they ministered, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work, uh, for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, uh, as their assistant. That's our verses today. So as I'm reading and I'm meditating on this word, uh, one thing stood out to me right away. And it said, it was in verse 2 and 3, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. And then in verse uh, 3, it says, Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So what, was, what jumped out at me right away is that they were prepared in advance to be sent out. They didn't wait till the word came and then say, hey, maybe we should pray about it. They were preparing in advance, ministering to the Lord. They were praying and fasting, waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak to them. I, you know, do you remember when the Seahawks like made that run to the Super Bowl? <laughs> Such a great year, wasn't it? I mean, even people who don't even care about sports are like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So remember when Russell Wilson Wilson said the separation is in the preparation? That's what totally came to mind when I hear them praying and and petitioning before the Lord before they get sent out. They're preparing in advance before they're going to go. I mean, what's hilarious about the Seahawks and, and Russell Wilson is, I mean, if you're being intellectually honest, you probably didn't believe the Seahawks could win the Super Bowl either. No, you don't want to say it. You can say it out loud now because it's, it's been a while. But I was like, the Seahawks? Come on, man. It's not going to happen. But but they all believed it. Yeah. <laughs> Russell Wilson actually believed that they were going to win the Super Bowl, even if nobody else believed it. Because they were preparing in advance. Paul and Barnabas, they had positioned themselves to be separated and sent out. They positioned themselves to be separated and sent out. They expected it. They prepared for it. 
Because they already prepared for it, they didn't have to decide because the decision was already made. I know. So the other thing that I should probably tell you about sermon preparation is oftentimes when they get to the end of the sermon, I have this weird feeling in my stomach like, was that what you wanted me to preach or was that just for me? And then half guilty walking up like, well, I'm going to preach it, but I think that was just for me. But the Bible doesn't describe them saying, and the Lord said, separate them and call them out. And then Paul and Barnabas needed some time to pray about it and see if they could arrange their finances and see if they could come a strategy to get out of debt first so that they can... Do what they were called to do. I know so often it, I feel that way in my life where I'm just like, well, you know, when it happens, we'll, fi- we'll figure out what we're going to do. We'll come up with a plan. But they were prepared when they got sent out. It, in, the, in the firefighting world, because, you know, I'm, technically I'm still a firefighter, although the desk is not going anywhere. <laughs> It's perfectly safe from 8 to 5, 4 days a week. But when I was riding the rigs, uh, there's all sorts of strategies for how you prepare to run an emergency call. Because anything can happen at any time. And so you'd go crazy if you spent all your time coming up with far-fetched scenarios and then trying to figure out what you would do to solve those problems, right? You don't know what's going to happen next. Well, there's this one firefighter I worked with... Uh, he was always so laid back. I love this guy. Just laid back. Everything's so easy going. Nothing riles him up. And so one day I was talking with him because I get riled up. And I'm like, how is a... Well, you always got to look for strategies, right? I mean, you see a guy who's doing what you like and then you try to figure out how they're doing it. Am I right, Pastor Matt? So this guy's chill all the time. So I asked him one time, I said, how can you be so calm all the time? Like, aren't you ever worried about what's going to happen on an emergency call? And he said something like, no, you know, I guess I'm just confident that when we get there, we'll figure something out. I mean, we always do. I was like, is this really how we're preparing? We're just going to wing it. I was like, okay, okay. That is not the example I want to follow. I could not just wing it. We have to do some preparation. And then I had this other lieutenant uh, who... What he loved to do all day is he loved to think of these just outlandish, far-fetched scenarios and then spend like an hour coming up with all the different ways that we could solve this problem. And I hated it. I hate, I hate the low-frequency emergency. I hate training for it. I hate spending all your training for something that may happen once in your career. Oh, it drives me crazy. Let's train on the thing that happens all the time. Let's get really good at that. But the reality is since anything could happen at any time, this guy would always want to, and I might've told you this about this before, but he'd come up with these far-fetched scenarios. And I remember in my brain just thinking, there is no way that's ever going to happen. This is a complete waste of time. Let's, let's dial it back into what's, what's going to happen. But then weird stuff does happen. You remember when the, the high speed train on its first run derailed on top of I-5 in rush hour traffic? I would be mad if he came up with that scenario. I'd be like, seriously, this is what we're doing today. I remember one time we went to this uh, house fire and there was one house in the middle on fire. 
that had caught this house on fire, which was halfway on fire, and this one was catching fire. We had three houses in a row on fire at the same time. What? Why would you ever need to prepare for three three new construction houses on fire at the same time? Because someone's going to put their cigarette butt out in the flower bed. It's going to crawl up the siding into the attic and catch the whole neighborhood on fire. It could happen. You remember Snowmageddon a couple weeks ago? Yeah. It's never going to happen. They they had so much snow in the northeast up there that they there was a cardiac arrest out in Duval that only two people could make it to. For like 15 minutes, there's two dudes trying to work a cardiac arrest all by themselves. And you're like, oh my gosh. And my biggest thought was, what did they do? Who were those guys? I need to find out what they did for 15 minutes before anyone else could show up. But you have to prepare for these things that are outlandish because they could happen, right? When the call comes out, you can't say, let's figure out what to do now. You can't pull out the book on the way to the call. Like, I know it's in here somewhere. You know, Paul and Barnabas weren't sitting around saying, well, when it happens, we'll try to figure it out. They're praying, they're fasting, they're preparing. They want to be ready when the call goes out. They know what's out there. They know what's happened before. They know that James just got killed by King Herod. They know Peter spent time in prison. Every believer they seen or talked to was persecuted in some form of fashion. Every one of them. You think they were sitting around going, well, maybe it'll be different this time. Maybe we'll get lucky. No, they were preparing, they were praying, they were fasting, they were getting ready for it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 says, The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Basically, don't make excuses for not getting your work done now or you're going to starve later. He's like, no, 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 it's winter. I can't get out there and work the fields. And then when it's summer, he's got nothing to eat. That's the lazy man. We don't want to be that as Christians. Uh, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 7. 6 through 10. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10. This is excellent instructions on how to be spiritually prepared. Let's look at this. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10. It says this, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Listen to how it's Peter's describing it here. Because when you think about being spiritually prepared for when the call comes out, this is just such a good little snippet that just keeps your, gets your mind in the right place for where you need to be. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Rest, uh, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory... By Christ Jesus, after you after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It's so interesting to think about how I view God's calling and how this describes how you should behave. Let him exalt you in due time. 
Humble yourself. It's so hard to be humble when you feel like you have a mission given to you by God. Or is it me? It is hard, right? Because you're like, I got this. God told me. But humble yourself. Let him exalt you. But one interesting part I see here that really stands out to me is uh, you have to be vigilant and watchful and sober in your judgment because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You must be prepared. The enemy will attack you, but do you know what his schemes are and how to resist them? You know he's going to attack you. I think that's a given, right? I mean, even non-Christians probably be like, oh yeah, the enemy, they attacks. But if you don't know how to prepare for that, or what the strategy the enemy is going to use, then how are you going to defend yourself? Or are you going to wait till you are under attack and then say, oh, let's try to figure out what he's doing here so we can adjust. You don't want to do that. You're going to need encouragement out there. But do you know where to find encouragement in the scriptures? Or are you going to wait till you're challenged and and try to Google it? It's like, what does the Bible say about trials? I remember, I don't want to use any names. I remember uh, a while back, um, a couple in our church used to go to our church. uh, um, The husband went in for uh, aortic aneurysm, went into surgery and it wasn't successful. And so he's in a coma and he's lying there. You don't know if he's going to live or die. And Pastor Matt and I are at the hospital forever. And this is, I think, in the middle of the night. And we're right outside his room with the wife sitting there on the, on the floor of the hospital in the hallway. And she says, I just need some encouragement. Give me a verse of encouragement. And I was blank. Wow. I had nothing. And I'm like, Dang it, if any there, any time there was a time to have a verse that you could encourage somebody with who's going through trial and hardship, and I literally am sitting there feeling stupid because I can't even think of anything. Not, not one verse. And so, I mean, (laughs) you have to be prepared in advance. You don't think you're going to run into somebody who needs you as a Christian believer to give them a word of encouragement in their lives? It's really, really hurts your testimony to pull out your phone and try to scramble through it to see if there's some daily devotional. They say, isn't this the God you serve? Where do you get your encouragement from? From here, hold on a sec, I'll find it. Listen. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm just saying, from someone who's made this error, (laughs) have something to draw from. You have a whole book, have something to draw from. You also must expect hardship. I think if you were to look at the entire Bible, and you picked out anyone who was named, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who was following the Lord, who didn't experience hardship. Why would you be different? This is going to be your moment. They're going to write a book about you that says, and experiencing no hardship, never needing a word of encouragement. It's not going to happen. You should expect hardship. You know that Paul and Barnabas expected hardship. 
I mean, like I said up to this point, all they'd seen is murdered Christians, beaten Christians, jailed Christians, uh, outcast Christians. They know that they're not going on a journey that's different than their, their brethren have been on. I mean, if Peter was just in jail and James just got his, uh, just got killed by the sword by King Herod, do you think they really think that their plight would be any different once they get out there? It'd be stupid to think that. So, you know you're going into hardship. You know you need to be prepared. You should be practicing fasting now. You should be denying your flesh, your fleshly desires now. You should be praying for those who persecute you now. You should be forgiving immediately. These are the kind of things that will prepare you to endure hardship in the future. When you find hardship, and when you find trials with relationships and you find uh, things aren't going your way, that's not when you decide that you're going to start learning how to fast and pray. That's not when Paul and Barnabas decided. They were already doing it. They already knew how to deny their flesh. They already knew how to submit to the will of the Lord. They didn't have to learn that after the call. Because after the call, how long is it going to take you to prepare for that? If you feel like God called you to do something and go somewhere and speak to somebody, how long are you going to wait trying to get prepared before you feel comfortable to go do what God's called you to do? And if you try to go do what God's called you to do, and you haven't prepared at all, how comfortable are you with the idea that you're going to be successful in in delivering what the Lord has, has asked you to deliver? I mean, when I work with that firefighter who wants to make it up as he goes along, I'm not entirely confident when we get somewhere he's going to know what to do. So he's the kind of guy we'd sit around the coffee table drinking coffee talking about, what if this happens? What if that happens? Because you need to know in advance. C.S. Lewis said this, hardship, hardship often prepares ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Amen. Apart from Jesus, everybody in the Bible is an ordinary person. They all have faults. They all had sin. They all had struggles. They all failed. And they all succeeded. Every one of them. Some of them saw the glory before they died. Some of them saw the promise. Some of them didn't. But their hardships prepared them for what what God had planned for them. It grows you. It it makes your roots solid. Uh, uh, it was 2006. Uh, we had a, a there was a anybody remember the big windstorm in December of 2006? Yeah, I was working that day. So there's this new neighborhood they built up there uh, on a golf course called Trilogy. So basically they cut it out of a forest. So they basically cut this whole golf course and, and houses out of a forest. So there's a bunch of trees there. But uh, how many of you know this? The trees in the middle of the forest don't have very good root base. Because they don't catch any of the wind. They don't catch any of the any hardship at all. Because they're protected in the middle. They don't do anything. So guess what happens when you clear out all the trees that have a root base. And then you have the windstorm of the century. There's like 300 trees down in the golf course. We had one guy. He had 10 trees on his house. And he's flagging us down. And we pull up. And we're like, is anybody hurt? He's like, well, nobody's hurt. But we got trees all over my house. I'm like, well... We can't stop and help you. Sorry. Now, on a normal day, somebody's got 10 trees on their house. Yeah, give us a call. We'll cut some of them off for you. But when everything's hitting the fan, when trials are happening, and the whole culture is persecuted, do you think we have time to stop and cut trees off your house? 
You need to be prepared. God will allow fiery trials to refine you like gold. You must learn from them or they are wasted. Um, I read the book, uh, Bait, Bait of Satan. And I'll talk about it a little bit more. But there was this example he used that I thought was really good illustration. So he's saying how they refine gold. Gold is precious metal. It's usually soft and pliable, which you wouldn't think so because all your gold is hard, right? That's because it's got other things mixed in with it. That's why it's 14 karat gold or 10 karat gold. That's why they don't make jewelry out of 24 karat gold because it's too soft, right? So what they do is they grind the gold up into powder and they add flux to it. I don't know what flux is. It's a thing. Look it up. And they they melt it, and the flux actually uh, attaches to all the impurities. So uh, the flux attaches to the impurities and draws it to the surface, and you can scoop out all the impurities. And then the gold is pure gold. And so I thought that was such a, an excellent word picture of being refined by the fire by trials and having all those impurities come out when you're under pressure. Like, cause when you get squeezed, what comes out, right? So where you're in the fire and you're getting under the trial, what comes out of you is the impurities that are in you. Man, I hate that. Oh, so many times I wish I could have back. Man, so many epic freakouts. Man. At some point, you can't avoid it anymore. And you have to let the Lord refine you and remove the impurities. Or you're going to have the same freakouts on people for the rest of your life. And what do you think that does to your testimony when you freak out on somebody? <laughs> or when your kid, well, no, they're not in here. When your kids catch you just like, somebody cuts you off and you do the whole like, like bang your head on the steering wheel thing. <laughs> Why did you do that? And your kids are like, whoa. <laughs> Like, oh man, they're in the car. And that's just traffic, man. Traffic is the least of our worries. Oh, refine. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10. These are Paul words. Paul's words. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a great word of encouragement. Because when you're going through it, uh, when I'm going through it, the thought of relying on my own strength is very discouraging. Because I know I can't do it. I know I'm going to quit. I know I'm going to give in. But if I can remind myself that through Christ's power and strength, then I can endure then I'm much likely, less likely, like an accountability partner. Imagine having Jesus as accountability partner. Well, you do. <laughs> so I went to India recently. I might not have talked about it to you yet. I haven't talked a lot about it. Uh, what's interesting is, and I'll try to keep some of the details out of it, is that uh, where we were is a persecuted area that is very unfavorable towards Christianity and missionaries. So they told us, if you come in to the airport and they say, what are you doing here? And you say, oh, we're Christians on a mission. They will put you back on a plane and send you home. So you're not. You're visiting friends. It's like, well, okay, Facebook friends, I guess. But we are visiting friends. I've met them on Facebook. But so it was interesting about 
their approach to it was they, they're like, you Americans put everything on Facebook. And so if you go back and you put this on Facebook, you, you don't realize when you come into the country, they could check your Facebook. And you're, you're naming us, you're naming our ministry, you're saying why you're here, you got a bunch of pictures of what you did. They're never going to let you in the country again. So maybe you could just keep this one between you and God. Like, oh, that's kind of challenging. So nonetheless, not a lot of pictures on Facebook, not a lot of stories. But while we were there, we were dealing with these uh, missionaries uh, in the north that came from the south. And uh, it's very interesting to hear their story because in 1966, after graduating from Bible college in the south, they went to the north. Uh, to into the spiritually dark territories, jungles, forests. I mean, there was people there now, but there was nothing but villages and jungles back, you know, that's like 50 years ago. It's a whole different situation back then. It, uh, <laughs> they're dealing with things like black magic, like real stuff, like witchcraft, black magic. They're dealing with idolatry. The the whole country is predominantly Hindu. There's about 3% Christian. They all live in the south. So anywhere else you go that's not right on the south tip there, there's not Christians there. Uh, they're going into an area. He said, this says this. He said, uh, they headed straight to the north in search of the land where the name of Jesus was unknown. That's called being a missionary right there. Where is it? Where have they never heard of Jesus? Oh, what? In the dark jungles full of black magic and idol worship? Let's go there. I'm telling you, there's some amazing people out there. This is a hostile country. They're full of superstition. Even the Catholicism that was brought into India was left without discipleship. So now things are just all idols. Right, right? Like in South America, right? It's just nothing about idols. And so it's so confusing for them for you to say Jesus and hold up the Bible. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, and they worship those things. But they don't worship Jesus, the Jesus. They worship the, the idols and, and material things because that's what they come from. So <laughs> he said this. These 50 missionaries have been there for 50 years. He said it's very, very hard work. The soil's very hard. It was, uh, it was eight years before they had their first native convert. Man, could you imagine toiling in a foreign area for that long, waiting for somebody to just give their life to Christ? It came through a miracle, actually. It came through a healing miracle. Uh, and then, uh, well, I'll tell you the quick story. So, she was really sick. She had no other options. The witch doctors couldn't do anything. So they show up, the missionaries show up, and they're like, hey, uh, all we have is this cup of cold water. So they give her a cup of cold water, and she gets healed. Yeah. And so so if you, <laughs> I know I've said it before, but if you're like, how come miracles don't happen here? It's because you guys are a bunch of unbelieving, <laughs> like, like, it wouldn't matter what happened. You guys would think it's some kind of movie magic. You're not going to believe it. But when you go to foreign lands where people don't know who Jesus is, miracles happen. God shows himself to people so they will come to know the Savior. So, she's working in the tea gardens. Uh, her husband gets bit by a poisonous snake. The missionaries are too far away for her to, to have them come. So she gets a cup of cold water. I'm not even kidding. And she pours it on the wound, and she pours it in his mouth, and he doesn't die. That's how people convert to Jesus right there. 
That was the first converts. And now they, well, soon after that, they had a church planted and established there. But it's not like it was easy. So uh, this is what he said. On a cold Saturday evening, two men twisting my arms behind my back and another tra- uh, thrashing me, shouting, abusing me, warning me to never come back to the remote village where we had gone and conducted an evening service, service with a few brethren who had recently accepted the Lord. I was reminded of Paul saying, and again I say rejoice. What was so interesting to me about their story in India was how much they relied on the encouragement of how Paul went through his struggles and trials. How Paul did it. They drew encouragement from that. And I just thought that is so great because it's all written down. There's so many verses in here of Paul suffering hardship where he says, nevertheless, Jesus Christ... I just love sitting there and listening to their stories about how things used to be and how far they've come and what has happened in their ministry and, and how you, you, they have one of the only caste systems left in the world. Uh, it's very, caste systems are a very strict system where wherever you're born into, whatever level it is, rich, middle class, poor, po- you know, abject poverty, you will never move out of that class. Your only hope is to die there and reincarnate into a different one. Maybe you do a bunch of good stuff. Maybe you get your level up. You know, you'll level up when you die. But when you become a Christian, a Christian, Christian was a religion seen as a lower class religion. So for somebody who is above the lower class to give their life to Christ means literally giving up everything. Parents, status, money, your future. They gave up everything. They have no longer have a future. They've basically become slaves in the nation because they decided to become Christians. We're over here like afraid to walk up in front of a group of people or share a post on Facebook. And they're out here like, maybe I'll get killed today. It's humbling. I mean, if you've never been to a foreign country and talked to missionaries out in the field doing it, like, I don't know, man, find an opportunity because it'll change the way you look at life. Now they spend time training native people to be sent out to minister to their own people groups. This is where we've come. It's an amazing, it's an amazing ministry that they're doing out there. They had no funding or support, threatened with death, eight years before their first fruits, but constantly encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul knew what it was like to struggle. I mean, I gotta admit, man, I don't know what it's like to struggle. Not like that. And, and I know I've said, oh yeah, I know what it's like. To, you know, I've, I've had hard, you know, hard things in my life, but man, I don't know. When's it gonna happen? Cause God's gonna have to refine me somehow. I'm a little nervous. Maybe I can get refined by preparing in advance before I have to be afflicted. Second Timothy chapter, Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 5. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
Obedience is better than sacrifice. Just because it costs you a lot doesn't make it more valuable or more worthy than the calling that somebody else has. But understand this, if you can obey the Lord in small things, you can obey Him in big things. But you can't wait to find out until you have something big standing in your face. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to prison. Amen. But you got something that God's calling you to do. You need to start preparing yourself now. This is how you prepare yourself. You prepare yourself by knowing your enemy and his schemes. I just mentioned earlier John Bevere's book, The Bait of Satan. Man, I wish I would have read that earlier. If you haven't read it, just go read it or listen. I listened to it on Audible. So it's, I mean, kind of not really lying that I read it, but I listened to it twice. But it was interesting. And I'll tell you one interesting thing. It was a year ago and I was riding in a car with Pastor Kevin and I was telling him how I had forgiven somebody, but I still really didn't like them and hope I never saw them again. <laughs> I've forgiven them in my heart, but I hope they go to hell and I ever see them again. I hope they get all the consequences of their negative behavior. And he's looking at me like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) And he's trying to be real gentle about it too. And I'm driving and I kind of side eyeing him and he's like, um, I don't know that you have. I'm like, no, bro, seriously. Like I've forgiven him. I've moved on. And he's like, you know, there's this book called the bait of Satan, but I kind of ignored it. And I was like, well, well, you know, it's fine. But it really made me think, though, about it, like a reality check. Like maybe I had a blind spot to the fact that that wasn't really having forgiveness in my heart. But when you read this book, he he does a good job of kind of illustrating what it looks like uh, to uh, be offended. And what I noticed in my life, and, and thankfully, Pastor Kevin pushed this book at me again a couple of months ago, is that I was offended about a lot of things and a lot of people. I was. It was a struggle for me. I was even offended with stuff with Pastor Matt. And I'd be like, well, you know, and well, you know, do, do, do. And I remember one time I talked to him about it. And he's like, I don't even ever remember saying that. I have no idea what you're talking about. But but if I if I said something, I'm really, really sorry. I was like, all right. Well, maybe you didn't say it, but it hurt. Last week, I found myself becoming offended because I thought somebody else was offended by me. I was offended because I thought that somebody else was offended by me. By something I had done, I thought might have offended them, and then I was offended that they were offended by what I did. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. But you know what the good thing is? Is I recognize it now. I recognize it now. And this is what was one of the most interesting parts that, uh, that John Brevere brought up in this book was that even if you're righteously offended, you're not allowed to be offended. Now, man, that was my ticket right there. Like, I've been righteously wronged. I can be offended. No. No, you can't. No, you can't be offended. That was a hard, that was a challenging word right there. 
But he brought up an interesting example that I want to, that you've heard of, and I want you to look at it differently. So he talked about Joseph. Remember Joseph's coat of many colors? Yeah, you remember the part where his brothers uh, tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery? So being sold into slavery was just like that caste system. Where he drops right to the bottom. He's a slave now. He'll do nothing else other than a slave. He's got no family. They don't, his dad doesn't even know he's alive. And his brothers wanted to kill him. He's got no family. He's got no future. He's got no inheritance. He's nothing but a slave who had a dream that got him basically cast out. He had a dream that God gave him. He told his brothers. His brothers basically got rid of him. He almost Almost dead. That's pretty much where he ended up. Righteously could be angry with his brothers. Totally wrong what they did. Ridiculous what they did. He got thrown in jail. And then even after he showed up, then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. He gets thrown in jail again. I mean, he's got so many people to be mad at. And he did nothing wrong. And not just like how I say I did nothing wrong. Like he legitimately did nothing wrong. And everybody is just wronging him until he becomes the most second most powerful man in the land. Now, he's the most powerful man in the land. He saves Egypt from famine because God gave him a dream about uh, a years, the years of prosperity and then the years of uh, famine. And so they saved up. So everybody else in the land is starving except for uh, Egypt. Everybody. Because Joseph helped Egypt save up. So now everybody's coming to Egypt to get food. Otherwise, they're going to starve to death, including his entire family. So his family comes before him and watch this. Like we know this one's wrong, right? So, uh, oh, there's my brothers. Just kill them. <laughs> like we know that's wrong, right? But how about this? Hey, I didn't do anything to them. No, don't give them food. Send them home. I didn't kill them. They died for their own consequences. That's their fault. They're just getting what they deserved. Right? A lot of us are like, "Uh uh-huh, they just get what they deserved. But he didn't do that. It's really interesting what he said when they showed up. He says in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. So he sees the course of his life, the trials and the hardship, and what he had to go through as God allowing him to go through trials so he could end up at the point where he could even save his family. The family that betrayed him, the family that doesn't deserve it, his brothers. But what's interesting, and this is what I hadn't connected the dots before, is you know who his brothers were, right? They're the patriarchs. They're the patriarchs. You know, like... Judah, like the kingdom of Judah, like the the uh, tribe of Judah. Remember who came out of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. So imagine if he had chose to be offended and sent his brothers away to starve. <laughs> oh, wait a second. It has ramifications, doesn't it? But he chose not to be offended even when he could have. And think of where it can go. I mean, you gotta understand that God is a big, big God. He's bigger than the enemy's deception. You think he's up there wringing his hands because the enemy uh, sandbagged you? You think he's up there like, what do we do now, Joseph? Your brother sold you into slavery. 
Maybe you shouldn't have told him the dream. No. He's like, it's fine. We got this. And I think of the, think of the outcome of what happened. Imagine if his brothers hadn't sold him into slavery and they never went to Egypt. Everybody in the land would be starving. Right? Because the only reason they're not starving is because Joseph got sold into slavery and God blessed him there. It's big. It's big. It's bigger than all that. Offense creates division. And the enemy uses that to destroy God's people. That's all there is to it. Offense is a tool of the enemy to separate you and divide you from your brothers and sisters. You do not have the right as a Christian to be offended. (laughs) I want to, but it hurts. (laughs) You don't have the right as a Christian to be offended. You have to prepare yourself now by knowing God's word. You have to. You can't wait. Colossians 3 verse 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, that's you, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. This is going to hurt too. Oh. The one who holds on to an offense has forgotten what Christ has forgiven them of. Doesn't that just change the way you look at it? I can't be righteously offended at this person who I feel like hurt the ones I love and betrayed me. Because of what I've done and the Lord has forgiven me of. I do not have a right to hold the offense and and, uh, hold back forgiveness. I don't. Unless I want to forfeit the forgiveness that Christ has given me. I don't want to do that. Here's two scriptures that I think uh, go hand in hand. The first one is Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 and 24. You may have heard this one before. Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar, uh, before the altar and go on your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gifts. That's where it's from. Now, this is chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. This is right after Jesus says that if you were angry, angry with your brother, you're in danger of judgment, just like a murderer is. So, He's definitely physically talking about if you come to the temple to lay your sacrifice at the altar and you remember you got to make things right with a brother, go make things right with your brother before you give your sacrifice. But he's also, I think, saying that if you're trying to give your gifts and talents to the Lord as an offering and to serve him, you first better go be reconciled to your brother. How are you going to come and serve the Lord when you have unforgiveness in your heart? Because... Gifts are given. You may have spiritual gifts that you're using and operating in even though you have unforgiveness in your heart. Those things are given. But fruit is cultivated. So if you're going to have some spiritual fruit in your life, you better cultivate that thing, right? Now, these verses, they work together if you think about it. Uh, you got, I mean, do I have to read the verses about forgiving one another? I mean, do we have to go over this again? Like how many Sundays and Wednesdays in a row have we talked about forgiveness? 
Okay, so like, look at your notes. There's a bazillion verses about how you need to forgive people. So you take forgiving people is what you need to do and going and seeking forgiveness. You put those two together and you got a united body of Christ. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Seriously, for me, holding on to an offense only has made me angry and bitter and irritable. Now, I've had reasons to be angry, bitter, and irritable. But I'm telling you what, holding on to offense just shot that stuff through the roof. Man, I am so glad that I, I know now when I start facing the offense of the enemy and it comes against me, I know now to think, no, 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 this is an attack from the enemy. He's trying to make me offended. Whatever it is, I'm just not going to be offended by it. Whatever it is. You know the quickest way to get over your offense? Is go to apologize to somebody who doesn't even know that they offended you. Right? I mean, it hasn't happened to me. No one's ever come to me and been like, Hey, I just wanted to say I forgive you for what you did to me. So maybe somebody will. But I know I've done that before. And people are like, that's great. You know? It makes things good. I'm just saying. So if I've offended you, please, like, tell me. I've offended you. So I can live out the sermon that God has put on me. <laughs> James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We resist the devil by not becoming offended. John Bevere said this too. He said, in other words, a believer who chooses to delight in the word of God in the midst of adversity will avoid being offended. If you delight in the word of the Lord in your adversity, you will be able to resist being offended. You have to prepare yourself. You have to prepare yourself now by fasting, praying, and listening to the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in this verse that Barnabas and Paul and their brothers were doing. Fasting, praying, uh, in, in prayer before the Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit. This isn't just an ancient Bible story. When we go through verses in the Bible, it's not just to be like, oh, listen to the history of where you came from. There, there's a, a modern day application for you. And when they do these things, when, when they're describing to you what Paul and Barnabas did and what was done with them, they're describing it as a model for you to follow. So when God can send you out, you're prepared to go. This will affect every part of your ministry. Anything that you try to do for the Lord, it'll affect it. It'll affect your testimony in the checkout line. It will affect the person who walks through the door in church for the first time. Your behavior and those kind of things will speak to them about who the Jesus is you serve. And you're either going to wreck it or you're going to bless it. But there's no cost neutral endeavor when it comes to representing Christ. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. You know who the lions go after, right? The sick and the weak, right? So if you're sick and you need some healing through the Spirit of the Lord and through His Word, you better get it. Because that's who the devil's going after. If you're weak in your faith, if you're weak in your relationships, if you struggle with things like forgiveness, that's who the devil's going to go after. They don't compare him to being a lion because it's, it's, uh, you know, just unique poetry. You have to be strong. You have to be prepared. Russ. Let's pray real quick. Let's bow our heads. Man.
man, Wednesday night. I love Wednesdays. Two things. If you're in this place and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity. Because I'd be remiss if you walk into the house of the Lord, worship his name and hear from his word and not have an opportunity to make him your Lord and Savior. So if that's you tonight, I would like you to just raise your hand and let me know that you want to make him your Lord and Savior tonight. No better time, no better place. Okay. If you're in here tonight and this word spoke to you and you are going to walk out of here and want to give forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, look at your ministry as a Christian differently and you want it to change your life, just give me a hand raise and just let me know that I was for you. It was for me. It was for me. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. Lord God, I thank you for speaking the hard things by your word, Lord God. I thank you for cutting deep, Lord God. I pray that I would never let it I never forget it, Lord Jesus, that I would always come back to your word for more and more truth, Lord Jesus. I thank you and I praise you and I give you glory. In your holy name, amen. 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 Don't forget your kids and all that stuff.